Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. There's still time. Last-minute holiday gifts made in the USA. And today on the show, two presidents of giant unions, the United Steelworkers and the American Postal Workers Union. Welcome to the Friday, December 22nd edition of America's Workforce, where we are available on at least five platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. We have two guests on the show today. Dave McCall will start things off. Dave is president of the United Steelworkers. He assumed that role on September 26, previously serving four years as international vice president of administration. And he became the president after the sudden death of Tom Conway. Dave is a fourth generation steelworker born and raised in Gary, Indiana, his great-grandfather, his grandfather, his great-uncles, his uncles and mother, all of them worked at U.S. Steel's Gary Works. So U.S. Steel is very near and dear to his heart, and it was announced this week that they are being acquired by a Japanese company, Nippon Steel, and Dave is not too happy about that. He said in a news release, we're disappointed in the deal as it demonstrates the same greedy, short-sighted attitude that has guided U.S. Steel for far too long. We remained open throughout this process to working with U.S. Steel to keep this iconic American company domestically owned and operated, but instead, instead it chose to push aside the concerns of its dedicated workforce and sell to a foreign-owned company. Now, this still has to be agreed to by the shareholders. So we'll talk about U.S. Steel. We'll also talk about uh, the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party's comprehensive economic report. And it's more than 100 policy recommendations. Well, we're not going to get into the 100 of them. But the one that stands out is that we need to take another look at normalized relations with China. I've talked about this on the show my gosh, for the last 25 years, practically, we normalized uh, relations with China right around, uh, right around 2000, 2001. And um, there was a lot of people in organized labor, steel workers, the auto workers, everybody in manufacturing say, you know, this is not going to be good because you know those jobs are going to disappear. But lawmakers at the time said, oh, don't worry about it. We're going to create new jobs. Well, we lost at least, according to the Economic Policy Institute, 4 million manufacturing jobs. And you know, when you lose a manufacturing job, you lose about four to five other jobs. So it was devastating. So we'll talk to Dave about that as well. We'll see what happens, especially in the new year. And we'll talk about the priorities of the steelworkers coming up in 2024. Later in the show, we are going to re-air an interview that I did in May with Mark Demonstein, Mark, president of the American Postal Workers Union, which represents more than 200,000 employees in the Postal Service and approximately 1,500 employees in the private sector mailing industry. A lot of people 
do not realize that. Mark began his first three-year term in November of 2013, so 10 years ago, then was re-elected in uh, 2016 for another term, and uh, he was re-elected again. So obviously he's doing a good job. Now, when we talked to him, which was the May 8th edition of America's Workforce, the Postal Workers Union was facing major, major staffing issues on the retail and delivery side of postal work. Mark also discussed some of the fundamental issues that needed to be fixed in order to improve working conditions. In fact, just before we talked to him, there was a uh, protest by postal workers. This was on um, April 28th, and they protested in front of postal facilities and congressional offices and locations across the country to sound the alarm about the staffing shortages. Now, they have hired some, but there's still a long way to go. By the way, they are in the middle of what's called a uh, Network Modernization Act. This is from the uh, management side of the post office, and uh, they're planning, and they've already got, I guess, part of this done, 60 regional processing and distribution centers. And uh, three of them are up and running, one in Richmond, Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina, and Atlanta, Georgia. Now, the union is having some issues with this, and you can find more if you go to the uh, national website, apwu.org, apwu.org. So Mark Dimenstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, we will replay that. And this is something we're doing here because, you know, during the holiday season, we kind of want to look back at some of what we did here on America's Workforce. And I want to thank you for listening to this show, especially this year. This has been a banner year for this show. When uh, when the clock turned January 1st, 2023, we were in the top maybe 15, 20% of podcasts. And keep in mind, there's 2 million podcasts, 2 million podcasts. We're now in the top 1%, thanks to you. Thanks to listening to America's Workforce. Thanks for sharing the downloads on this show. So uh, we hope to see that even grow in 2024. And you can help us out on that. Now, a brief look into the world of labor. This segment brought to you by the good folks at Boyd Watterson Asset Management. Well, there is still time to get a holiday gift made in the USA. You, you know how quick shipping is today, thanks to the UPS workers with a new contract, mind you. From the Teamsters? Yes, yes, yes. With the clock ticking down on Christmas, the quest for the last-minute gifts and stocking stuffers is on. Recent polling data indicates that 8 out of 10 Americans, 8 out of 10, so 80%, express a strong preference for purchasing made-in-America gifts, and there is still time to find them by using the Made in America Holiday Gift Guide, courtesy of our friends at the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Scott Paul, who we just uh, featured on the show a couple weeks ago, says, while big box stores may not be the most straightforward retailing outlets for discovering American-made gifts, you can have great success, even in places like Walmart and Target, with a bit of research. In November, the Alliance launched its online 2023 Made in America Holiday Gift Guide, showcasing offerings from over 200 companies. The Wall Street Journal reports, for those seeking alternatives to flimsy 
fast fashion apparel or inexpensive wares from China, the guide includes relative rarities such as U.S.-made blue jeans and baseball caps. Scott emphasizes that the guide serves as an invaluable resource, providing a solid starting point for consumers to conduct through research before embarking on their final shopping journey to these retail giants. Now, I know time is of the essence, so maybe you don't want to go online at AmericanManufacturing.org, but you can go there just to get some ideas and then shop locally. And here's some examples. Crayola. They uh, originate out of Pennsylvania. Crayola produces over 3 billion crayons a year in the Keystone State. These iconic coloring tools are available at major retailers, making them a perfect gift for creative minds of all ages. Slinky. Boy, remember Slinky? The original Slinky is still made in Pennsylvania. A classic stocking stuffer. This timeless toy can be found at various retailers. Look for the name brand to ensure the genuine experience. Here's a big one. Step two for toddlers and small kids. Step two offers a variety of toys, including water tables, push carts, playhouses, and play kitchens. Beyond Yoga. This is a woman-owned company providing eco-friendly athletic and leisure wear for women. You can find Beyond Yoga products at mall stores like Nordstrom. There's the United States Playing Card Company, the parent company of beloved cards like Bicycle, easily found at most retailers. United States Playing Card Company makes great stocking stuffer ideas for card game enthusiasts, and I know there's plenty out there. How about uh, Anchor Hawking? There's a big name. Made in the state of Ohio by the United Steelworkers Union. Anchor Hawking Glassware, widely available. These items are perfect for holiday meal leftovers, and you know there's going to be plenty of those. How about Nordic Ware? Celebrating their 75th anniversary, Nordic Ware offers kitchenware, including cookie sheets and cake forms, all made in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And one more here before we break. KitchenAid Stand Mixer. Not, while not all KitchenAid items are made in the USA, the Stand Mixer the stand mixer is assembled at the company's facility in Greenville, Ohio. Just a couple examples there. You can find them all at AmericanManufacturing.org. Again, kind of late as far as shipping, but your local retailer has plenty of these available. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Dave McCall, president of the United Steelworkers, coming up next. This is America's Workforce. More shows available at awfradio.com. It takes Lyuna to build North America's infrastructure. From roads and bridges to schools and skyscrapers, the men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, build the projects we depend on. From constructing the Freedom Tower on the site of the former World Trade Center to untangling Washington, D.C.'s congested interstate, Lyuna members do the work that matters. Find out what it takes to be built by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. Attention members of the Heat and Frost Insulators Union who are interested in traveling. Central Ohio has more construction projects on the books than anywhere in the U.S. Mega projects, large and medium-sized jobs are creating more work 
than our local 50 brothers and sisters can handle. Projects like Intel, the Honda LG battery plant, and multiple data centers for Facebook, Google, and Amazon offer union wages, overtime, and exciting incentives. Local 50 is seeking union travelers to meet the needs of its signatory contractors who can put you to work immediately. If you're a member in good standing and interested in the work opportunities in Central Ohio, visit insulators50.com forward slash AWF travel for more information. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Steelworkers. You can find more at usw.org. America's Workforce appreciates our sponsor, the Columbus Central Ohio Building and Construction Trades Council, who represents more than 18,000 workers from 19 affiliated local unions and district councils. America's Workforce is sponsored in part by Boyd Watterson Asset Management, LLC. Find out more about our investment solutions tailored to meet the needs of Taft-Hartley funds at BoydWaterson.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Heat and Frost Insulators Labor Management Cooperative Trust. Find out more at insulators.org forward slash LMCT. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And remember, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast. Let's go to a line number one and welcome one of our national sponsors here, the United Steelworkers, USW.org. And joining us is the president of this giant union. We're talking 850,000 strong, Dave McCall. Boy, I tell you, Dave and I have a long history. Remember when I started the show back in 25 years ago this year, we had Dave on almost on a daily basis talking about the bankruptcies in the steel industry and dave and i have another thing in common my dad worked at the uh, the old cuyahoga works which is part of u.s steel he started there in the 1940s he retired in uh, 1975 and i worked there two summers and i remember talking to dave about that and now of course dave worked at u.s steel in gary indiana and now u.s steel is being sold to a company in japan Boy, sometimes you can't make this stuff up, Dave McCall. I mean, it's been a crazy year for you with the sudden passing of Tom Conway. And then this week, the announcement about U.S. Steel. I'm going to let you pick it up from there because uh, this had to be a shock to you. I remember talking to you about Cleveland Cliffs possibly acquiring U.S. Steel. What uh, what happened here, Dave? I, I mean, I, I know you're following this very closely. Go ahead. Well, Ed, I, I uh, appreciate you having us on, and, and I appreciate the comments about Tom Conway. I've told you before, he and I were friends for 45 years, worked in the mill together, and it has been a real bittersweet uh, year in, in his passing and all the other things that are going on here in the union. With with regard to U.S. Steel and, and Nippon, uh, you know, it's raised a huge amount of concerns for us. First of all, U.S. Steel and Nippon both have violated our collective bargaining agreement by not discussing this deal or notifying the union prior to announcing the deal. Uh, as, as we've talked about before, we had given our, our right to bid assignment to Cleveland Cliffs because Cleveland Cliffs have made uh, so many commitments to us about continuing uh, blast furnace operations around the country. So that's good for our members, good for our retirees. Our, our concern here with Nippon is what the long-term viability is going to be of our facilities and the employment security of our members and the viability of our pensions and health care for our retirees. And with no communications and no, uh, no contact about this, it's, uh, it's raised real concerns. And then 
on the announcement uh, when U.S. Steel and Nippon made the announcement on Monday, the representative from Nippon uh, talked about how they intended to follow the U.S. Steel plan to transfer uh, current operations to non-union facilities in Arkansas, which, by the way, is also a violation of our collective bargaining agreement uh, in terms of our capital expenditures provision. So um, it's it's uh, really created a lot of a lot of issues for us and. You know, there's real real issues around national security and domestic supply chain. If all of a sudden the iconic uh, American steel company is owned by uh, the Japanese, uh, now we we currently have dozens of anti-dumping duties uh, imposed upon Japan due to their illegal trade practices. And when I say illegal trade practices, you know, we think trade is good. Uh, trade is good between countries, but when they cheat and when they do illegal things like uh, subsidizing their their facilities and selling prices or selling products below the prices that it costs to to create them, uh, those are violations of the law, and the penalty is those anti-dumping uh, uh, duties that get put on them. But uh, it'll it'll be a, a real struggle over the over the next uh, few weeks and months uh, as this thing uh, approaches. And you know, yesterday uh, we had announcements from the White House that there was going to be a real uh, scrutiny around this deal and what it would mean in terms of foreign ownership and what it means in terms of national security and domestic supply chain issues. So uh, it'll be a so, problem. So we, we, okay. So there's, there's obviously a lot of people very upset. I was reading some comments earlier this week from uh, Senator Sherrod Brown, JD Vance, not too happy about it. He brought up the, uh, the national security issue. John Fetterman in Pennsylvania says he wants to look into it. Now, it, it seems to me, I mean, this has greed written all over it because uh, didn't they pretty much pay almost double in stock compared to Cleveland Cliffs on this deal? Something like that. And U.S. Steel figure, well, let's just take the money and run. Is that kind of what happened here? Well, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that the uh, the deal was twice what Cleveland Cliffs offered. I think Cleveland Cliffs would have to respond to what that means uh, or what the what the final uh, bids were on it, uh, you know. Cleveland Cliffs uh, have been supporting the decarbonization and technology improvements that we need in order to stay competitive. We're the most competitive steel workers and steelmaking facilities in the world. What can compete about, about uh, with anybody? So that's never a concern. But, for example, Cleveland Cliffs has been making great progress with not only new technology, but about reducing carbon and steelmaking with their HBI facilities, their scrap utilization, and their hydrogen usage. Where they're twenty currently, we're twenty five percent lower in carbon emissions than Nippon is in Japan. So, in terms of uh, what their philosophy is about the future of steelmaking in the U.S., uh, really concerns us a lot. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, when I brought up double, I, I saw it reported the the stock deal was like seven point three billion. Nippon's paying. 14.1 billion but this is all uh, we'll see what happens in, in all you know, this the, the, the bottom line on this david i mean you called it out here and, and nippon said in a release that they're going to honor all collective bargaining agreements it, it doesn't sound like they're they're very fair to uh, to unions uh, to i guess that's pretty much part of their history then well listen we've had we've had uh, experiences with them before they were you know a joint venture with arcelor middle uh, down in Calvert, uh, Alabama. And we had a provision about neutrality around organizing. And we actually went down there. You, uh, one of our uh, retirees uh, who was active at the time, Pat Gallagher, was down there organizing 
that facility and we got a majority of the cards signed and after we did they went uh, directly to the Trump uh, NLRB and had it extinguished so you know our experience with them is not too good in terms of following the collective bargaining agreement already well, Dave, best of luck to you on uh, on going into this in uh, 2024. Do you think that these hearings, it sounds like there's going to be a number of hearings on this. Do you think they're going to happen right away because of uh, of what happened here this week? Well, I hope so. Uh, sooner the better. Uh, you know, U.S. Steel is saying that they think the deal will close, or they're proposing to close the deal in the second quarter of next year. But I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny before that. And, you know, the other thing that bothers me most about this flash is, We've got real opportunities going into the future with infrastructure and IRA and chips and science. And now all those tax dollars suddenly are going to benefit a foreign-owned company. I, I think it's a real it's a real issue. And, you know, I, I'm just real concerned about what their future plans are and how that impacts our retirees and how do we enforce the guarantees that we have in the federal government around guaranteeing those pensions and those retiree health cares against a company that isn't domestically based. Yeah, we've been pushing by American and here the steel is going to be foreign. It's amazing. Just amazing. They start talking about shutting down our facilities and then all of a sudden there's a need for for uh, exposed automotive, tin plate products and, and some military grade products. Where is it going to come from? Japan. Now, if yeah. they're an ally, not saying anything uh, negative about uh, our, our foreign policy with them, but they're certainly not an ally when it comes to economic policy. Well, Dave, if you don't mind, I want to talk about China now. And uh, this is in reference to the uh, House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party's Comprehensive Economic Report. And there was a lot of recommendations, about 100 of them. And uh, the one that stands out is the unwinding of the normalization of relations, trade relations with China, which goes back to, uh, my gosh, this was during the, the Clinton administration, yeah, 2000, 2001. And that's another subject that you and I talked about 20, so almost 20 years ago when, uh, when we, we saw what was going to happen and sure enough, it did. We lost, we lost millions of jobs here. Now, Dave, I don't know if you had an opportunity to look into this report, but, uh, it, it sounds like they finally, they being the lawmakers of today, have finally said, you know what? That probably wasn't a very good idea what we did back then. I'd like to, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Go ahead. Uh, the, the truth is, is that uh, you know, as steel demand in China has regressed over the last couple of years, more and more, uh, whether it's steel or other products, uh, they continue to invade our country with subsidized products and and with products that they sell. Uh, for less than what they cost them to produce them. And what they're really doing is exporting their unemployment to us and, and causing unemployment here. So I'm glad that we're finally reviewing that, talking about what normal trade relations are with what's really a non-market economy. So I, I don't think they're going to, like, wipe it out altogether, but at least kind of maybe make it somewhat better? I, I don't know. In, in your opinion, what, what can they do at this stage? I'm just wondering. We've lost a lot of jobs. I know I know there's some reshoring going on right now, but uh, what, what, what do you think is going to happen next year? Well, again, with the, with the implementation of the Infrastructure Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, and Chips and Sciences, that gives us real advantages for new opportunities uh, for really – making sure that we have solid and secure domestic supply chains. And that's really what we've got to look for. If we're going to look about viability and sustainability of our economy in the future, it has to be based on fair trade 
and not being taken advantage of by uh, countries who only think, as they said, about uh, uh, exporting their own unemployment. We're speaking with Dave McCall, president of the United Steelworkers, USW.org is the uh, the national website here. Dave, a couple minutes left here. Just like to uh, you to reflect on this year going into next year. Uh, again, it's been kind of bittersweet here, especially with the uh, passing of Tom Conway. But on the bright side, we saw a lot of good things in organized labor. I mean, you, you, you're right now there's almost a million people with uh, really good contracts, double-digit increases, long overdue, I might add, especially with the auto workers, the Teamsters. You got SAG after my union, healthcare workers. I'm just wondering, you know, you've been around this uh, around the block for a long time. I'm just wondering how you feel with uh, with 2024. Could this continue? I know we have a politically charged year, but in your opinion, how um, how how do you see 2024 from a steelworker perspective? What's your what's your take on that, Dave? Well, I think we're going to do very well. We're going to continue. Uh, we, you know, we've got some big organizing strategies that we've been working on in the South. We just recently organized 1,400 new workers down at Bluebird Bus in Georgia. Uh, we've got a an ongoing uh, uh, strategy around organizing uh, some of the uh, newer uh, tire companies that have been created down south, and we've been successful there. Uh, with with the advent, as I said earlier, with the infrastructure and the IRA, uh, there's lots of new uh, startup companies that we have already engaged with them in terms of trying to help them uh, take advantage of some of those opportunities. So we've signed neutrality agreements with them, and we think going forward, there's some real opportunities uh, for, for not just organizing, but for uh, more and more union workers to, to join the labor movement. And really, as, as the president says, um, the, the unions are the basis for the growing the middle class. And it's time in this country that we grow the middle class and, and continue to grow it, not shrink it where the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. So. Uh, we, we think things look good. I, I'm not going to say that the future looks so bright we got to wear shades, but what we got to do is work hard and continue to work, and, and I think that we'll be successful. I love that song. <laughs> <laughs> Takes me back to my rock and roll days. I love it. Okay, brother, I'm going to leave it on that note. Dave McCall, president of the United Steelworkers, international president, I might add, USW.org. You take care. Stay safe. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And we'll talk in 2024. Okay, brother? Merry Christmas to you, Ed. And thank you. All right. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to replay an interview I did with the president of the American Postal Workers Union. That would be Mark Dimenstein. Back in a few minutes. You're listening to America's Workforce with Ed Flash Ferens. It takes Lyuna to power North America with affordable energy. The men and women of Lyuna, the Laborers International Union of North America, have the skills needed to build and maintain oil, natural gas, nuclear, solar, and wind projects that are shaping America's energy future. From new energy tech to retrofitted facilities, Lyuna members do it all. Find out what it takes to be powered by Lyuna at lyuna.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. 
The Alliance for American Manufacturing is a nonprofit, nonpartisan partnership formed back in 2007 by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers. Their mission is simple strengthen American manufacturing and create new private sector jobs through smart public policies. Keyword there is smart. We need to be smarter than ever in today's highly competitive world. The Alliance for American Manufacturing believes that an innovative and growing manufacturing base is vital to America's economic and national security, as well as providing good jobs for future generations. Good jobs today, good jobs tomorrow. Good American jobs. Find out more at AmericanManufacturing.org. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, where you can find more at Teamster.org. There is unity and strength for workers. We are the USW. We are the USW. The, the United, United Steelworkers. Steel the largest industrial union in North America. We represent 850,000 members in, in the, the US, US, Canada, and, and the, the Caribbean. Caribbean. We work in metals, rubber, chemicals, paper, oil refining, atomic energy, and the service sector. We are steelworkers, standing strong and fighting for what's right. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers. You can find more at ifpte.org. This segment of America's Workforce is brought to you by Survey and Ballot Systems. SBS has been providing unions with secure and flexible election options for over 30 years. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com to learn more. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Iron Workers. You can find more at ironworkers.org. Now, back to America's Workforce. Here's Ed Flash Ferens. And remember, you can check us out on at least five platforms. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. And when you get an opportunity, here's what you do. Just sign up and receive our shows on a regular basis and give us a rating. We always appreciate those five-star ratings, so please keep them coming. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the Ohio Federation of Teachers. You can find more at oh.aft.org. If you miss our segment with Melissa Cropper, president of the OFT, just go to awfpodcast.com. Well, as I indicated at the top of the show, what we're doing from now until the beginning of the year, playing some of the best of segments of America's workforce. Well, as a host, I think they're all pretty darn good, but there's some that stand out a little bit more than others. And one of them is a conversation that I had back in May. It was actually May 8th, and it was a conversation with the president of the American Postal Workers Union, Mark Dimenstein. Great guy. Definitely a fiery leader. He's been president for uh, 10 years. And when we talked with Mark, the Postal Workers Union was facing major staffing issues on the retail and delivery side of postal work. And since then, the Postal Service is in the midst of a transformation. It's a 10-year plan aimed at modernizing its processing and delivery network. And you know, when something like that happens, there's always hiccups, labor violations, things like that. And that's why it's important to have a strong leader like Mark Dimenstein. So let's go back to May 8th and listen to our conversation with Mark right here on America's Workforce. Let's go to uh, our live line right now and welcome someone that we have uh, checked in with a couple of times. And every time we check in with them. There, there's always an issue. Mark Dimenstein is president of the American Postal Workers Union. He's had that position for about 10 years, 40 years 
altogether as a postal worker. Talked about this last week. Staffing is a problem. If your mail is delivered late, there's very good reason. There's not enough people working in the postal system. Mark, welcome uh, back to America's Workforce. Why don't you uh, why don't you run down the numbers here? Because uh, and, and again, I say this all the time on the show. The pandemic has changed everything. And uh, the postal system was very much affected. Then it became a political issue. I don't want to get into that right now, but tell me where we are right now. Go ahead. Well, thanks so much for having me on again. Uh, great to be here. Uh, look, it is, there's, there's a lot of challenges. And one of the reasons that the American Postal Workers Union and uh, our activists, our leaders around the country, our many allies were out in the streets last week is there is a serious problem and still a serious problem with staffing. And so our members, postal workers, are extremely dedicated to the mission of serving the people. But we have to have the tools to do it. And so this was a day we were uniting with the people of the country saying, look, we got some problems that need to be addressed. Short staffing, undermined service, longer lines at the retail side, uh, and, and so on. But it also causes much harsher and hostile working conditions for the postal workers. Because when we're short-staffed, we're under extreme stress. It, low, it, it increases the pressure. It lowers morale. And no worker, postal worker or any other worker, should come to work in a hostile work environment. We should be treated with the respect and dignity that all workers earn. So, so this was a combination day. Now, I have to say, in all honesty, there were some positive efforts that postal management made to beef up staffing and what's called the mail processing side. But the side where the customer interacts the most with the postal worker, the, the retail and delivery side, that is not taking place and it needs to be fixed and it needs to be fixed quickly. Okay, Mark, let, let's talk about the shortage. Where are we now and where should we be in order to get proper delivery here? Well, with thousands and thousands of, of workers uh, less on the retail side than we were 10 and 15 years ago. And a lot of what's feeding this is this massive turnover of postal workers when they get hired because of the working conditions, because of the hostility. Postal jobs not easy. And a lot of the people that we represent work 24-7, a lot of night work, a lot of weekend, a lot of holiday work. And if, if, if people aren't trained right, if people aren't treated right, people don't stay. So according to the Office of Inspector General, there's almost a 60% turnover in the new hire side on the Postal Service. And part of what feeds the turnover is the entry-level the entry job is not as good as it used to be. People come in on a, what's called a non-career basis. The wages are not as good. The benefits are not as good. The future is not as good. And so people don't stay. Uh, and of course, the short staffing that we're talking about also feeds that vicious cycle. So management really has to deal with the, uh, the whole retention problem. There's been some efforts to get a better path to career employment, but it really hasn't yet deeply affected this turnover rate. And then when, when there's this constant churn, there's not enough people. For example, we represent people in the retail side and many retail post offices are staffed with just one or two people. Mm -hmm. If something happens that morning, there's a car accident, there's an emergency, somebody gets sick, somebody has to go to the hospital, whatever. 
there needs to be enough staffing to cover that. And what happens, unfortunately, is there's often not someone can't come to work. That post office is closed that day. That's wrong. That has to be fixed. But it all comes back to beefing up the staffing. Make sure there's an, enough relief in, for instance, on the retail side, so the customers constantly get the kind of service they need and deserve and are promised under the law. Mark, these uh, new hires, you said that uh, 60% of them are gone. Is that like in the first year that they're hired? Yeah, the, the, the turnover rate that the Office of Inspector General talked about is a yearly retention rate. So if we're talking about 50 or 60% turnover, that's that year. Wow. Is there any effort to say, hey, come on. Okay, this is rough. Can you stay? Can you stick it out? Does that go on? Yes. And 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 in our last round of collective bargaining, we actually made some some positive advances. Uh, I think management approached this in in a good faith because they they see they have a problem is that we, we do have a better path to a career opportunity. So, for instance, in most cases, a non-career post employee, if they haven't made career by other means, after two years, they will automatically be converted to career. But in that two-year period, if people aren't treated right, if people are not respected, if the staffing is such that it causes this undue stress, then people aren't going to stay. There's a lot of other opportunities out there. So the picture you're painting here, Mark, yeah, that first year is pretty brutal. But if you can stick it out for two years, you might be uh, you might be elevated to the next level there. I, I get that. The, the, this toxic work environment, I, I need some explaining on that. What What's going on with the supervisors there? Well, it's been a longstanding problem in the Postal Service. Uh, where, and look, it's, it's not all one way or the other. I've worked for plenty of good supervisors that were rowing together to make sure that people got the service that they need and the service that they deserve. But there's also a large element in the Postal Service, and it's been historical, that rule by bullying, intimidation, uh, uh, there's a lot of harassment, sexual harassment, in our view, is on the rise. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's a problem that needs to be addressed fundamentally. We sometimes can get an individual problem fixed. Postal management at the highest level sometimes will address an individual problem. But it doesn't fundamentally change the environment. We call it whack-a-mole. So you have a problem, you whack it here, but it's coming up everywhere else. And we're asking management, we're demanding of management. Enough is enough. We want a zero-tolerance policy when it comes to abusive supervisors. We don't want them shuffled around. We don't want them moved around. We want them taken out of supervision. And we want supervisors to be properly trained and implementing a true respect and dignity policy in relation to postal workers. That'll not only help the postal workers, it'll help the people of the country and the kind of service that they get. So if a supervisor or any kind of manager is charged with, say, you mentioned sexual harassment, let's use that. Instead of being disciplined, they're moved to another location. Is is that what's going on? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not saying that supervisors are never disciplined, but more often they're not. More often they are not. And often if there's an abusive su- uh, supervisor or manager in one area, often they will move them rather than take them out of the system. Uh, and when we say take them out of the system, we talk about taking them out of the managerial ranks. 
Yeah. Uh, we have we have people jeered at work. It, it ties back to the short staffing. There's not enough staffing. It's hard to get the mail up. It's hard to get the mail out. We we have instances where supervisors would jeer the employees publicly um, uh, in front of other employees because they're not getting the work done fast enough. Well, the work isn't being done fast enough because there's not enough human beings and there's not enough workers to do that work. So, Mark, who's going to help you on this? I mean, the, the postal system is like an independent agency. I mean, can you go to Congress and say, hey, we've got some issues here? What, what's the next step in all this? Well, the, the, we're hoping that, the, that there was a powerful message sent last week on Workers' Memorial Day, which highlights the question of workplace safety. Right. Uh, we're hoping that that message will, 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 will be heeded. We took it to the streets after many other efforts. We, for instance, in our contract, we negotiated a task force to try to address these problems. It, 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 it isn't working. We've had a lot of conversations with upper-level management all the way to the postmaster general. It isn't changing yet. So this was taking it to another level, and we're going to see what happens. Now, certainly we have many friends in Congress on both sides of the aisle, that that are on our side on on many issues, but this is a tough issue to legislate. Certainly, Congress can bring attention to the uh, 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 problem at the local level. City council, councils, county commissioners, state houses are can certainly bring attention to the to the staffing issue and highlight that the people look. There are some areas of the country where people are just getting mail delivered one or two or three days a week. That goes back to staffing and the local entities, the, our, our, our local political representatives, our many community organizations, they certainly bring attention to this problem. And when, when, when there's focus, when the, the, the problem is, uh, you know, that when there's a laser focus on the problem, Often the post office will come in and try to fix it right there. But they need to fix it in a broad sense. Mm -hmm. You know, I I get my mail sometimes at 8 o'clock at night. And it wasn't like that some years ago. And we got a great, great, now this is a different union I know. That's a letter carrier. That's That's a letter carrier and all that. But it's all part of the system. It's all part of the system. And and it it, it has changed dramatically. Now, getting back to the... uh, the rallies that you had, and you did this right on Workers Memorial Day, which was uh, April 28th. I see seven right. sites nationwide. How did you uh, come up with the various cities where you did the rallies? Was there some uh, strategic planning in that? Well, uh, yes and no. We had about, there were at least uh, somewhere around 60 uh, rallies. What, what we did is we had a three-pronged day. Uh, the postal workers themselves filled out surveys. Uh, prior to the day and during the day, internal union surveys so that we can better assess how the workforce is feeling about the workforce environment and what they suggest for changes. Two is we stickered up that day in workplaces all over the country. That was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of workplaces. Postal workers demand respect and dignity. Stop the harassment. And then the third prong was a number of public rallies where we united with the people of the country around the staffing uh, issue. So your specific question of where did we choose it, we left it up to the local unions, and we have locals all over the country. And many of the locals combined into one rally, for instance, in the Philadelphia area. A number of the locals from around that area all the way to Harrisburg participated in one 
rally. So we really left that up to the various states and the um, various uh, locals. Gotcha. Mark Dimenstein joining us on our live line today. He is president of the American Postal Workers Union, APWU.org is a website. We'll continue with him. I want to talk about postal banking. Yeah, we got it. We, we need we need some help when it comes to the banking sector, especially with what's been going on the last uh, month or so. Once again, Mark Dimenstein. This is part of the best of America's workforce from the May 8th edition of the show. We'll continue right after this. This is America's workforce. It takes Layuna to keep America running. Over 70,000 public employees are part of Layuna, the Laborers International Union of North America delivering critical services such as health care and emergency response, as well as maintaining roads and sanitation systems. Even the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, representing over 47,000 U.S. postal workers, is affiliated with LIUNA. Find out what it takes for LIUNA to keep America running at LIUNA.org. That's L-I-U-N-A dot org. The Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council consisting of eight ironworker local unions in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Michigan. We build the skylines and bridges along the Great Lakes. With more work than ever before, the Great Lakes District Council is actively searching out the next great ironworker. Whether it's building the next Intel plant or constructing a bridge to safely connect our great cities along the lake. So join the Ironworkers Great Lakes District Council today. Find out how and learn more about the council by visiting IWDistrictCouncil.com. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the United Auto Workers. Find more at UAW.org. America's Workforce Radio is sponsored in part by the International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, District Council 6, representing painters, glazers, drywall finishers, and sign and display industry workers. They remind you that belonging to a union is your right as an American. America's Workforce is brought to you in part by the Communication Workers of America. You can find more at cwa-union.org. Union members need to be heard. Reliable and convenient union voting has never been more important than it is now. Make voting easy for your membership by working with survey and ballot systems. SBS offers encrypted and monitored solutions that ensure your elections are accurate and accessible for every member through mail-in, online, and in-person voting. Visit surveyandballotsystems.com and take the next step in getting secure and auditable elections. America's Workforce is presented by the Labor's International Union of North America. Feel the power right now at liuna.org. Now, back to Ed Flash Ferrens with America's Workforce. And don't forget, you can check us out on Facebook or follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. That would be AWF Union Podcast, AWF Union Podcast. By the way, this next segment brought to you in part by the United Labor Agency. You can find more at ulagency.org. We're going to continue our conversation that we had with Mark Dimenstein, president of the American Postal Workers Union, a conversation I had with him on the 8th of May Mark talked about some of the fundamental issues that needed to be fixed in order to improve working conditions at the post office. Let's go back to our live line, rejoin Mark Dimenstein, Mark, president of the American Postal Workers Union. We're talking about the staffing shortages here, but I want to get into postal banking. I remember the last time you and I had a conversation on this, you were really, really driving it. And now with these crazy bank failures, I think it's, 
front and center right now. Why, why don't you explain? And I guess this is something that happened years ago. Kind of, why don't you refresh what happened and what you're trying to do here, Mark? Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, listen, the, 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 the Postal Service, the U.S. Postal Service, had a savings bank for over 60 years. Uh, and, you know, the, the, and it served the people of the country in a really important way. Now, in the mid-1960s, the banking lobby became powerful enough where that ended. Now, it's, it's interesting to note that throughout huge swaths of the world, the, the posts provide basic banking services. It could be small loans. It could be uh, 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 bill paying and so on. So it's really something that's needed. We, we, so there's almost 80 million, 60 to 80 million people according to the U.S. Postal Office of Inspector General, there's between 60 and 80 million people that either unbanked or they're underbanked. They either have no access to financial services or they get stuck in this predatory payday lending check cashing industry. It's a huge burden on the working class and particularly the low-income side of the working class. Here you have a public agency trusted in every community that already provides some basic financial services. The post office, for instance, provides money orders. That's a basic financial service. And then on top of it, you have a new focus, as as you mentioned, with these bank failures. And I just had an op-ed that, that said, okay, here's the private side. Here's where greed leaves, leads us on the banking side. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have a public option? It's not about just making money and profit for the Wall Streeters and the hedge funders and the bankers, but about serving the people. And wouldn't it be much safer and much more stable for the people of the country? And I think the answer is yes. So we're huge advocates, as most people you talk to will be, and, and raise it. And people say, that's a great idea. I'd love to do some basic financial services at the post office. So we're focused on starting with some smaller steps. To get actually a postal bank back in the United States would take legislative change. And that's certainly a challenge. Uh, it's a challenge that we're ready for and that we plan to organize for. But that's a longer run challenge. But in the shorter run, the post office can do, we believe, under the purviews of the law, they could do some basic financial services, paycheck cashing, electronic bill paying, ATMs, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. So we've been working with postal management to uh, to try some uh, pilot programs. They seem willing to try some things. And unfortunately, the Postal Regulatory Commission, which is a bureaucratic agency that, that regulates the Postal Service, uh, threw some obstacles in our past. So we're trying to see if we can deal with those things. And it goes back to the idea that the Postal Service can only do postal products. And this isn't really a postal product. We think it is. We think they have the right to do it, and we know the people of the country need it. So we have this wonderful public mission. The Postal Service is defined as as an agency and an institution that's here to bind the people of the country together. And basic financial services is is uh, part of that. So just imagine to be able to go in the post office and cash a paycheck without getting ripped off. Wouldn't right. that be really a, a a good thing? And and uh, so and and again and. Uh, you pointed out right in the beginning, this, this, this banking crisis is real, and it ought to raise up the need for a public entity, and the Postal Service is right there, a public trusted entity. 
that can provide basic financial services. And, and it would help the people of the country. And it would help the Postal Service because the Postal Service needs revenue. Revenue would come in with this kind of plan, but the people would not be ripped off like they are in this predatory payday lending uh, industry that if some people have to find it would make the mafia blush with the kind of rates <laughs> and, 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 and the kind of interest rates that uh, they charge. It's a form of legal loan sharking. And the yeah. Postal Service as a public entity could really help put a stop to that, which could really help the people of the country greatly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those check cashing places, you're looking at at, a, at like 28 to 50 percent interest rate, depending on how long it goes. It's, it's sad. I didn't realize that number was that high. 60 to 80 million people in this country have no access to uh, the financial sector because well, of, the pos- yeah, of the position. Yeah, they, they have either no access or what they call the underbank which is the access of, quotes financial services, but it's the predatory payday lending check cashing industry, which is an absolute ripoff for the hardworking people of this country. So, Mark, you mentioned a pilot program. Do we need legislation to, to start something like that? We, 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 we don't, in our opinion. The post office uh, does have some, some broad rights to uh, try some things out, see how they work, and then decide whether to uh, broaden it. Now, when they broaden it, the Postal Regulatory Commission does have some regulatory oversight. But we believe, and the Office of Inspector General of the Postal Service, uh, in a report in 2014, actually defined four or five or six areas where they believe the Postal Service already has the authority under the law to provide certain services. Uh, For example, we already do money orders. Why can't that be brought up into the electronic era where those bills can be paid electronically right through the post office? It's the same thing as a money order, but it's an electronic money order. We believe those things the Postal Service already has the right to do under the law. Well, you know you're going to need more staff for something like this if it goes That's right. if it goes down that road. And you're, I know you're fighting with that right now. But anyway, these are these are good ideas. They really are good ideas. I mean, to your point, so many people are getting screwed out there. Let's uh, let's make that process more comfortable for them so they can go to their local post office and not get ripped off. I like that a lot. Mark, you're always. You're always good to uh, come on this show. Thank you so much for joining us. I love that idea. Let's stay in touch on this. Let's see if we can make it happen, okay? Happy to do it. Always a pleasure to come on. Greetings to all of your hardworking listeners out there making the world go round. Once again, Mark Dimensen, president of the American Postal Workers Union. Some of the best 2023 coverage here. That was a conversation I had with Mark on the 8th of May. That'll be it for another edition of the show. Coming up on Monday, Christmas Day, the IBEW, and we recap the Trade Women's Build Nations Conference. Until then, all of you have a wonderful holiday weekend. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. America's Workforce is a production of Labor Tools and BMA Media Group. Find out more information online at labortools.com.